1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, mathematician Hannah Fry on the mathematics of love, and then John Ronson returns to Little Atoms for the sixth time. Talk about his new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Dr. Hannah Fry is a mathematician at University College London's Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis. In her day job, she uses mathematical models to study patterns in human behaviour from riots and terrorism to trade and shopping. Alongside her academic position, she is currently a UCL Public Engagement Fellow, taking the joy of maths such as it is, into theatres, pubs and schools. She also co-presents the BBC Worldwide YouTube channel and regularly appears on TV and radio and most recently on Climate Change by Numbers on BBC4. Her first TED Talk attracted more than 500,000 views and evolved into her first book, The Mathematics of Love, which we're going to be talking about today. So, Hannah, thank thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Why... Generally, why do you think maths can give us an insight into, our into love? Well, into love, I'm
3: quite happy to admit that they don't seem to naturally sit that well together. I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, the thing is though, even though I, I mean i'd be the first person to say that you can't use equations or proofs to really capture sort of you know the thrill of romance or you know the real essence of love, but at the same time, I, I think that math can still give us something because in our love lives there are all sorts of different patterns in the way that we behave in the way that we speak about each other and when we decide to settle down um, and those patterns, math is uniquely placed to describe them and unpick them
2: so let's talk about What are our chances of of meeting somebody in the first place, somebody we consider compatible? listeners will be very familiar with the, uh, the Drake equation. Yeah, of course. Um, so let's talk about the mathematician Peter Backus, who yeah. sort of bastardised the, <laughs> the Drake equation. Yeah,
3: in a really nice way, though. Yeah. So the idea behind the Drake equation, then, is that, is that you take the whole universe, and you, you, the more and more criteria you put on, you know, uh, distance from a star, you know, um, ability to support life, and mm. so on and so on, you shrink down the number of potential candidates that you have. And what Bacchus did is the same thing, um, but for the number of potential candidates he has for his own heart, shall yes. we say. So he starts off with you know everyone in the world, shrinks it down, he's only willing to look for people in London, mm-hmm. uh, shrinks it down further, he's only interested in one gender, um, shrinks it down further in that he wants them to find him attractive, mm-hmm. um, and so on and so on and so on, and mm-hmm. ends up with a number of 26 women in the whole of the world, who
2: would be available for him to date, shall we Mm -hmm. say.
3: Which I think sounds quite pessimistic,
2: in Mm. my opinion. Yeah, he's quite... Well, he's a bit fussy. I mean, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> he's a touch, touch on the fussy side. I didn't Google a picture of Peter Backus. He's but actually he's very, he's very
3: good looking. Oh, actually, very good. Yeah, okay. and he's also. I should add, he's also married now. Yes, he's So uh, it worked yeah. out for him in the end. And um, but there were certain things like so. For example, he says that he only finds one in twenty women mm-hmm. attractive, um, which for me, I mean, maybe I'm just. Left, maybe I'm just left thinking. <laughs> Maybe I'm just less picky. But also, he, he wants to have somebody who's got a university degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of quarters the number of women that are available to him, and isn't willing to... Uh, well, I, mean, I suppose the biggest one is that he's not really willing to date anybody outside of London. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, you know, the 26 women figure, you can sort of work out your own number using the same idea. Um, but I think the 26 women thing does actually raise an interesting point, which is that the more and more criteria that you put on, the smaller and smaller your pool of potential partners mm-hmm. shrinks. So, the, I mean, I, I know that I certainly have some friends who've been single for a long time and are unbelievably picky, you know. They've got to have this job, they've got to like this music, their hair's got to be this colour, or like they can't wear brown shoes with jeans or whatever, right? And like what you're ultimately doing in that sense, if you if you sort of quantify it, is you're setting yourself a completely impossible challenge. Yeah, you're trying to find somebody. Your probability of finding somebody who matches your your long list of criteria is almost 0 mm.
2: So like, you probably shouldn't introduce me to your
3: friends. No, they're dark enough. That's fine. Yeah. Oh wait, no wait. Was it black shoes? I can't remember. Um, I think it was black it was my shoes. Sister, it wasn't oh, <laughs> I think it was black
2: shoes with jeans. Yeah, black it. shoes. Yeah, to not do
3: that. Yeah. Well, I well, I don't care.
2: <laughs> so this idea, we do this ourselves. We're going to talk about computer dating more mm-hmm. specifically a little later on, but. We do this thing ourselves whenever we're filling out that form to say, you know, what we like, what do we want from a date. And you can, again, massively close down the number of people that would be compatible with you by doing that, can't you?
3: Yeah, of course. And I think the thing is that, you know, all of the evidence suggests that online dating algorithms, as sophisticated as they are Mm. and matching your own personal criteria, they do nothing for finding somebody who you're actually likely to be successful with in the long mm-hmm. term and I think that you know thinking of things in those terms a checklist just doesn't really work I mean ultimately you don't know whether you're going to like somebody until you actually meet them mm-hmm. and that you know all of the evidence points in that direction that you, you cannot select predetermined criteria based on your own ideas that will guaranteed to find you somebody that you like mm-hmm. but i mean i I've certainly you know anecdotally i can think of countless people who ended up with somebody who you know they never thought they would be with in a million years i mean if i'm honest with you i'm probably also one of those people mm-hmm. with my husband if I, you asked me 10 years ago i would never think that i would be with somebody uh, that i would end up you know finding happiness with somebody like that mm-hmm. but i think i mean that happens time and time again right checklists don't work
2: No matter how much we talk about maths, and as I said, we're going to talk about algorithms on computer dating and stuff, fundamentally, it's all down to looks, right, isn't it? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, (laughs) etc. So how important is beauty, then? Let's talk about that. Uh, Well...
3: Um, Okay, so, well, okay, there has to, obviously, there's something in beauty, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking of how many different societies have ended up prizing beauty Mm -hmm. above almost anything else, you know, there has to be something in it. And there is. But it turns out that, for the most part, the things that we um, seek out as attractive, Mm -hmm. or seek out in in a potential partner and deem attractive... Are actually just markers for our evolutionary pre-programming mm-hmm. to look for the best sort of host, shall we say for our future genes so for example, things like symmetry mm-hmm. come out in lots of tests um, so people really prize naturally symmetrical faces, but that is, uh, it looks like just a marker for health as a child so every mm-hmm. time when you're growing up you have a little um, cold or something your face becomes slightly asymmetric so a symmetrical face is, is a, a sign of health there are other things that you know in women reprise big eyes big lips sort of small childlike chins mm-hmm. lean figures good waist to hip ratio that kind of thing um, and likewise in men defined brows and like strong jawlines and muscular bodies mm-hmm. both of those things come through, with the sex hormones during puberty. So people who are uh, likely to be very muscular, like mm-hmm. men rather, who are likely to be very muscular and have very well-defined jaws, um, they also will have a high level of testosterone as they go through puberty, mm-hmm. which is, again, just another marker for fertility, really. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing when you pick out somebody with nice big plump lips and like, you all know, you know, lovely little chin and big eyes, what you're really doing is you're, you're sort of giving in, shall we say, to your evolutionary
2: programming to want somebody who probably get pregnant quite quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that symmetry, staying with, you know, an idea of maths, there's, well, it's a bit of a myth, this idea of the golden ratio. Yeah,
3: but it's so prevalent. Mm. I mean, so actually, I have to confess, you know, until um, I properly did the research on this book, even I mm-hmm. believed it, and I, I totally bought it. Mm-hmm. And it, well, it says quite a lot about my inability to think critically, I think. <laughs> if I, I mean, but so it said, in case you haven't heard this, it, it says that the perfect face matches the proportions of the golden ratio, so that your mouth will be 1.618 times the width of your nose, that mm-hmm. your brows and so on. But ultimately, absolutely not true, complete rubbish. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, well, ultimately, it's just not science, right? Like, you can't just take loads of faces, measure random ratios until something that roughly mm-hmm. matches your theory. I mean, it's just, it's just a completely the opposite of scientific <laughs> process, right? Um, but also, you know, 1.618, it's, a, it's an irrational number, right? So mm-hmm. it goes on forever. So how do you decide, you know, maybe like the width of your nose and mouth might be, you know, roughly 1.6, mm-hmm. but how do you decide exactly where your nose starts or where your mouth ends or where your ear starts, you know? It's just uh,
2: rubbish. The other thing I wanted to talk about in this section is listening thing, the decoy effect, which I think gives, will give hope to a, to a lot of people listening, I might suspect.
3: <laughs> yeah so uh, I mean the, the thing about beauty is that you sort of hope that there's, um, there's some like, or oh, I hoped anyway given the remit of the book was about mm-hmm. mathematics I hoped that there was a mathematical idea somewhere And this is, you know, one of the places where it does exist. So um, when people make choices, when people make decisions, you can wrap it up in something Mm -hmm. called um, discrete choice theory, uh, which is very, very mathematical. But it's also uh, got results that are quite tangible and easy to... Well, that we're all very familiar with, because they often get exploited by people who are trying to get you to choose their products. Mm -hmm. So one of them is this thing called the decoy effect, which is that if you have... you're trying to, like, sell a product... You can make it look better mm-hmm. by simultaneously marketing a very similar but slightly inferior mm-hmm. version, right, of that same product. So um, popcorn, say, popcorn at the popcorn cinema. cinema, exactly. Yes, yeah. yeah, so like medium versus large popcorn, yeah. uh, and then there's a small as well, right? So the large popcorn looks ridiculously expensive until you realise that the small popcorn is like fifty p cheaper, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh well, yeah, actually maybe it is a bit, bit of a, a better bargain. Like it kind of just serves to make it look better. Um, so, there's a, an economist called Dan Arley who has applied this decoy effect to human beauty. Mm-hmm. And what he did was he found two of his students actually who were, uh, did surveys and, and, and found out that th- these two male faces were considered roughly the same level of attractiveness, right? 50% mm-hmm. people would go for one, 50% people would go for the other. And what he did is he then c- took one of the faces and created like an uglified, Photoshop mm-hmm. uglified version of that face and then presented the three faces together, two originals and one uglified version, and asked people who they thought was more attractive. And where an uglified version of your own face appears, you suddenly become the much more attractive option, right? Mm -hmm. So 75% of people chose the original face which had an uglified version. Nobody chose the uglified version, Mm -hmm. but the uglified version served to make the original face much more attractive. And if you change the the person that you're uglifying, the results switch around, right? Mm -hmm. So 75% of people then go for the other face. And the sort of implications of this study, I think, are quite interesting, which is that basically, when you go out on the pool...
2: <laughs> what are your you ugly, ugly mate?
3: <laughs> well, yeah, but not just your <laughs> ugly mate. They need to look as similar to you as possible, but just noticeably inferior. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: so So a brother
3: or something yeah exactly an uglier brother yeah (laughs) Yeah. exactly exactly I just need to find like another six foot tall ginger girl who's just who's like you know marginally like (laughs) slightly uglier
2: Into little atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Hannah Fry. We're talking about her book, "The Mathematics of Love: Patterns, Proofs, and the Search for the Ultimate Equation." And Hannah, I want to talk now about game theory mm. in all its um, <laughs> Glory. weird and interesting flaws. <laughs> and we are I have to we have to set out that we are sort of <laughs> stepping into that slightly, not slightly, very murky, falling <laughs> territory of the pickup artist a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> But let's, yeah, we'll talk about some of the, um, some of the applications of game theory and um, the stable marriage problem, first of mm-hmm. all. Explain to us what that is. Ooh,
3: okay. Yeah, the idea is, imagine you're in a bar, mm-hmm. uh, lots of single people are in the bar, uh, and everybody really wants to, you know, hook up with somebody and go home, mm-hmm. right? Like, hook up, you know, hook up with somebody. And I suppose as well, everybody in their heads has, like, a, a list of who they think is most attractive. So you can split all the people in the bar into two groups: mm-hmm. the group who are proactive and approach people, and possibly risk some humiliating rejection. Let's be fair, um, and the other group who uh, sit back and wait for their choice of suitors. Yeah, but you know, no, you never have to be rejected or humiliated. So in that sense, the setup is mathematic- is equivalent to a mathematical problem, mm-hmm. the stable marriage problem. Um, and in that, once it's put into the, the language of maths, you can prove. Mm-hmm that the people who do the approaching the people who are proactive always 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 end up much better off than the people who stand back and Mm -hmm. wait and it kind of makes sense if you think it through in that if you're proactive and you go out and uh, go to people that you like you're going to start at the top of your list and Mm -hmm. you're going to work down so you'll end up with the best person who will have you. Whereas, if you stand back and wait for people to come to you, mm-hmm. all you can do is end up with the least bad person who happens to approach you. But it's kind of interesting that you, you can sort of prove that being proactive is a positive thing, which I think is something I probably should have known about when I was, like, you know, <laughs> single. <laughs> so I was rubbish at it.
2: <laughs> so more classically, a game theory thing then. So um, Robert Axelrod decided to mm. the tip for towel, which... Has you know, time and time again, proved to be the most effective approach. In terms of, well, for both men and women attempting to to woo each other, let's talk about how game theory can, can apply the approach, yeah. um
3: okay well so the thing about game theory right is that you're you're trying to exploit the weaknesses of your opponent. Mm-hmm. i mean that's ultimately what it's about right or at least you know that's how you frame it so a lot of the game theory that's applied to dating is unfortunately based on you know extreme gender stereotypes mm-hmm. um, in particular that men only ever want to have sex and women of course are constantly trying to trick men into marrying us mm-hmm. So, a lot of the ideas are based on you know on that and, and and trying to get the most out of you know the other person in that respect. but Axel wants tit for tat I really like when applied to game theory um, because it actually ends up giving you a much more positive message mm-hmm. because you know the idea is that if somebody doesn't call you, for example. Um, essentially, every time that you interact with somebody, you're playing a version of the prisoner's dilemma, right? Mm-hmm. In that they can, they can misbehave and still have you sort of fawning after them. And that's re- ultimately going to be the biggest payoff that they mm-hmm. can get. But likewise, that means in the future, you're less likely to trust them. So you can kind of think of a, of a relationship as though it's an iterated prisoner's dilemma, that you're kind of continually playing this game mm-hmm. against each other. And in that sense, Axelrod's tip for tap strategy helps you decide, you know, what to do if somebody doesn't call you Mm -hmm. or if somebody misses your birthday or if somebody's just like generally a bit of a dick. Mm -hmm. And the idea then is uh, so there's four things to Axelrod's uh, tip for tap. So first up is to be clear, so mm-hmm. not play games within the game. Um, secondly to be nice. So unless somebody does something bad to you, unless somebody, you know, messes you around or doesn't call you or whatever, mm-hmm. there's no reason to be nasty. So generally be nice unless you're you're given reason to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. The next one is to be provocable. So if somebody does something bad to you you shouldn't allow yourself to be exploited so you should punish them with something that's measured a measured response right Mm -hmm. something that's kind of of an equivalent weight so if they don't call you maybe don't return their call when they finally do Mm -hmm. or you know give it a day or whatever or if they cancel on you yeah you know cancel on them And then the final thing is to be forgiving, which I think is something that people often forget, Mm. which is that once a a bad deed has been punished, you should go back to being nice as quickly as possible, and then go back to cooperating with each other.
2: So I mentioned we were going to talk about online dating, Mm. and there's definitely maths involved here. I mean, Mm. it's become, over the years, more and more important, and you talk about particularly what's probably the biggest dating site now, OkCupid, and... Mm and it's set up by a couple of mathematicians and the algorithm that they use is supposedly very sophisticated although it doesn't actually seem that effective <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: well I mean it's, it's kind of it's doing exactly what it was designed to do mm-hmm. which is deliver you people who match your own personal criteria right and in that respect it's very good mm-hmm. the these slight- are
2: criteria that we've chosen you, de- to you define with. yourself yes, yeah yes.
3: exactly by answering a series of questions yeah. and saying what you want what response you want in your partner um, so, in that respect, it's very good at that. But just a slight issue is that you don't know you don't know what you want until you find it, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And there's, there's, there's kind of countless pieces of evidence of this, but probably one of the most profound is the evidence from OKCupid themselves, right? Which is where they did uh, an experiment on humans, was the blog post that they, they called. It was amazing. And so this guy, Christian Rudder, one of the co-founders of OKCupid, mm-hmm. essentially what they did is they took some people who genuinely were a 90% match percentage and they compared them with another group who were actually a 30% match percentage um, mm-hmm. But the group that were in the theatres then, they lied to them and they told them that they were 90% matched Mm -hmm. with each other and then looked at how those different relationships evolved over time. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the chances of of messaging people, you're much more likely to message people and get into some kind of a conversation Mm -hmm. if you believe that you're a good match, which Mm -hmm. means people put some sort of store into the algorithms. But in terms of prolonged messages... I mean there is a slight difference between the people who really were compatible in inverted commas mm-hmm. and people who were just duped into thinking that they were but it's really slight I mean the chance of like actually having more than four messages with somebody I mean it's in the teens for both both cases mm-hmm. so people put store in these in these algorithms but they're not so good at like actually find yeah actually getting people
2: how could you talk about how they could mm. improve that so what would we need to do to make it work better. Better? yeah
3: and yeah. um, well so the only thing in the academic research which has been shown to be a long-term predictor is something called non-conscious synchrony mm-hmm. so basically the idea is that you don't know what you want until you find it mm-hmm. but as soon as you find it your body gives you away completely, mm-hmm. right? So, I guess we've all heard of this thing you know, your pupils dilate, your heart rate increases, mm-hmm. um, all of those different things. But also, the way you behave starts to mimic the other person, yeah. right? So, your speech patterns end up synchronising, your laughter ends up synchronising, you end up mimicking their body movements. I feel yeah. massively self conscious. Right <laughs> don't like that. <laughs> all of these things start to happen and all of these things you can also i mean you could it would be fa- we're fa- fairly close to being mm. able to track those using technology right so yeah. you could use for example if you had an online internet date that was like a speed date right mm. you could use sort of a skype like technology you could use image recognition software to mm-hmm. to track where people were mimicking each other's Body language um, you could use serial like technology mm-hmm. to track people 's vocal patterns and their speech patterns and then at the end of a very short internet day you could deliver a meaningful match percentage that 's actually in certain cases shown to be a genuine predictor of long term mm-hmm. compatibility
2: I find this bit fascinating particularly because it 's like it 's basically you know body language it seems like some Pseudo scientific bullshit from the 1970s, but it's actually no, it's actually it's real. true. Oh, I know it's real. And it, to be
3: honest, it's something that I'm like, I think is totally fascinating, and I don't know an enormous, enormous amount about mm-hmm. it. But the thing is, have you ever noticed, like, when you have a conversation about body language, everybody suddenly becomes really self conscious? I mean, <laughs> you can
2: sit on your hands and don't move. Don't play with no, your hands, right. whatever you Playing do. Playing
3: with your hands, I know, exactly. <laughs> like, don't touch your face. Oh, guys, touch my face. <laughs>
2: We talked earlier about the we talked about the decoy effect, and I'd sort of questioned whether or not looks was the thing that mattered above above all things before. In the internet dating world, this is really counterintuitive, <laughs> but it pays to be a bit ugly. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love this. I love this so much.
3: Yeah, so the OK Cupid guys have um, it, on OkCupid okay There's a there's a voluntary section where you can rate how attractive you think people are between mm-hmm. one and five. And you can compare that to how many messages people receive to get some sense of how looks relate to popularity. And the thing is, it's not just the best-looking people who end up getting all the messages. Mm-hmm. Actually, the people who do the best are the ones who divide opinion the most. So the people who some people think are really gorgeous, mm-hmm. but other people think a bit a bit ugly... And I think the reason is, is that people, when you're sending messages in an online dating context, you're, you're really thinking of your own chances, right? And if somebody is just classically beautiful, you imagine that they're going to get loads and loads of messages. And, mm-hmm. you know, why would you throw your hat into the ring and risk being humiliated? Whereas if you spot somebody who you think is really gorgeous, but you suspect that other people aren't going to be that interested, Mm -hmm. it's like less competition and an extra incentive for you to get in touch. But I also think it's kind of worth remembering when it comes to online dating, you're not trying to attract everybody. You're not trying to appeal to the masses. You're Mm -hmm. just trying to attract the people who are right for you. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, and kind of proving that it works, you're much better off to just play up to whatever it is that makes you different, which is sort of the opposite of what people do, right? Mm-hmm. People try and often try and you know, minimise whatever they think makes them mm-hmm. unattractive. But you shouldn't do that. You should just like, basically let it all hang out.
4: <laughs> I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: I guess the reason most people are you know, taking part in this whole stressful world of oh, dating yeah. and online dating particularly... <laughs> Um, is because they're you know they're looking for somebody to settle down with yeah. eventually. so I want to talk about optimal stopping theory. let's talk <laughs> about when is the right time to settle down? Yeah,
3: right, so I suppose this is one of the more um, shall we say abstract bits of math <laughs> So it's not based on real data. but the idea is that if you think of if you think of your dating life, right, the time that you're going to spend dating for most of us, as soon as we sort of cash in and settle down with somebody, we mm-hmm. can't look ahead to see all the people that we could have met yeah. if we'd gone to the bars and, you know, stayed online or whatever. You can't you can't see those people. And equally, as soon as you've rejected somebody, once you've dumped somebody, it's very hard to go back, right? And if you frame it in that way, you can begin to look at it mathematically. And in that sense, you can you can start to ask the question of when is the best time to stop and settle down mm-hmm. in your dating life because obviously or well i suppose obviously um you don't want to leave it too long if you want to maximize your chance of happiness you know but equally it's generally not advisable to just you know cash in mm-hmm. and like marry the first person who comes along and shows you any attention at all so where in that dating window should you stop and start thinking seriously about marriage and um, so as all of us do i think you can uh, you know most of us i should say uh, spend some time playing field when we're young mm-hmm. and then at a certain point we start thinking more seriously and if you frame this in a mathematical way it turns out that the ideal time for that that rejection phase is 37 percent of your dating life mm-hmm. so if you start dating when you're 15 say and ideally you want to get be settled down by the time you're 35 before the time you're 35 then what you should do is before your 22nd birthday just do whatever you want basically have a nice time and mm-hmm. play the field have like boyfriends and girlfriends and stuff but don't take any of them really seriously mm-hmm. and then after your 22nd birthday has passed then you should pick the next person that comes along that is better than everybody that you've seen before and if you do that you can prove that you're mathematically maximising your chances of finding the best person who's available for you.
2: But that would also presumably entail leaving somebody who you thought was great, but it's oh, not. Oh, yeah, I mean, this right method,
3: I'll be honest, it's, it, this comes with risks, <laughs> like <laughs> quite big risks. Because for some people, you're going to meet the perfect person for you before your 22nd birthday, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this method doesn't work all of the time, it only works just over a third of the time. Which is, I mean, like, let's be honest, it's still quite low. Chances. I mean, I, I think this is, I mean, like, this is much more into abstraction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, wouldn't necessarily guarantee it, like, suggest anybody should go away and dump something just yeah. because they're under 22. Um, definitely not. But the thing is, that's, I think it's quite interesting, is just that one simple step of having a rejection phase of 37%, you increase your chances of finding somebody from, you know, actually quite small. So imagine you were going to date 20 people in your life. If you just pick one of them at random, Mm -hmm. the chance that they're the perfect person for you is 1 in 20, right, Mm -hmm. or 5%. But using this method, you can increase it to 37%. So from 5% to 37% chance of success, I think, is pretty profound, right? Mm -hmm. But just you're going to lose out two-thirds
2: of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, then, once we've finally met the person, once we've met the person who we want to stay with, what can math tell us about staying together? How can we prolong that relationship? Yeah.
3: Well, so this is my favourite bit of all, and it's based on some really serious, genuine academic research, which is that a psychologist called John Gottman um, and his team have basically observed couples in conversation with each other for decades, right? And they've recorded them having a conversation about the most contentious issue in their relationship and what they've done is they've worked out a way to score how positive or negative Mm -hmm. everything that everybody's doing in that in that conversation and just from those scores so sort of how positive were you how negative were you Mm -hmm. they can predict whether a particular couple will get married uh, get married sorry will get divorced Mm -hmm. with a 90 percent accuracy which is pretty astonishing right but what's more astonishing is, I think anyway, looking uh, not only just at how positive or negative people are overall, but how people's positivity and negativity can influence their partner and send them down into spirals of negativity mm-hmm. or take them out of negative stuff and back into positivity and looking at kind of how those patterns and the ebb and flow of a conversation evolves. Um, so they teamed up with a mathematician called James Murray mm-hmm. um, to sort of study these uh, you know, th- these dynamics. And they came up with a series of equations which captures how things work. But one of the most important terms, or the most important term, I should say, in this equation is something called the negativity threshold, right? Which is basically how annoying one person has to be before they provoke a really strong reaction in Mm. their partner, Um, a strong negative reaction, I should say, in their partner. So you might think that, like, the best relationships, the ones that last forever, are all about compromise and about giving each other space to be yourself and about, you know, not bringing stuff up unless it's a really big deal Mm -hmm. and so on. So people who would have, like, a really high threshold for negativity... Mm -hmm. But actually, it turns out that the opposite is true. It's the people who have a really low negativity threshold who end up doing really well in the long term. So these are the people who, if something bothers them, they speak up about it immediately. They Mm. never let small stuff end up being a really big deal. They kind of allow each other room to complain and are constantly repairing and resolving tiny, tiny issues in their Mm. relationship before anything becomes a big deal. And I think that's really, good. it's kind of counterintuitive, but I mean, ultimately, what it's saying is that you should communicate openly and
2: honestly and as often as possible. That's a good lesson to learn, that's a good point
0: was Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: finish on. So I've been talking to Hannah Fry. We've been talking about her book, The Mathematics of Love, Patterns, Proofs and the Search for the Ultimate Equation. So Hannah, thank you so much thank for coming you. in and telling Thank you that. very much. Goldacre. You're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. John Ronson is an award-winning writer and documentary maker. He's the author of many best-selling books, including Frank, the true story that inspired the movie, Lost at Sea, the John Ronson Mysteries, The Psychopath Test, The Men Who Stare at Goats, and Them, Adventures with Extremists. His first fictional screenplay, Frank, co-written with Peter Strom starred Michael Fassbender, and John's latest book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So John, welcome back to Little Atom Church, I think think the sixth time. I
4: believe every time I've got a book out, I come and do it. It's like the the constants in life, uh, death, taxes, and Neil Denny. This is true, this is
2: true. Now... It's a bit noisy in here. We're recording this backstage at the Colchester Arts Centre, so perhaps we should talk about why we're here, first of all. What uh, are you doing?
4: I'm giving a talk, an evening of public shaming. Um, I'm doing a...
2: People are going to be putting the stocks and
4: things, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> <Au> contraire. <laughs> um, I'm going to be... Yeah, I, so basically I'm here for, like, two and a half weeks, and I'm doing a mix of, like, paid, paid gigs and free gigs, which is sort of the way of the future. About five years ago... Uh, I was giving a talk in Sheffield and a guy came up to me afterwards called Mike McCarthy and he said, do you go up and down the country, like talking at literary festivals, for free? And I said, yes. And he said, and have you noticed that like the ticket prices are like 10 quid? <laughs> which means, like, if 400 people came, that means, like, £4,000 was made, yet you didn't make any money out of it. And I said, yes! And he said, has this been annoying you? And I said, yes! <laughs> and he said, well, I'm going to change all that. So I signed with him, and mm-hmm. now you get paid. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like a huge amount, but, you know, you get paid. So what I do now when I've got a book out is I do a... Uh, a mix of like you know water so like this kind of talks that you used to do where people just pay like three quid and that makes the publishers happy because it means people are more likely to buy a book yeah. if they've only paid three quid for the mm. for the ticket and then with other talks like this one where the ticket prices are a little bit higher maybe 10 12 quid and i get paid
2: so we're going to be talking about so you've been publicly shamed the mm. new book and this is it's such a brilliant idea this book it's so topical You've been obviously writing this book for, you know, books take a long time to write, so Mm. some of the instances of internet public shaming that happened obviously happened years ago, but every single day, it seems, there's a new example of this. Mm. So when did you first notice it was a thing?
4: I suppose... I mean, I noticed it in a positive way at first. I noticed when Jan Moyer in the Daily Mail wrote wrote a column blaming Stephen Gately from Boyzone's death, on being gay and in a civil partnership, even though the coroner, uh, who you would assume would know more than she would, said it was natural causes. And Twitter was outraged. You know, we weren't going to take this kind of resurgence of old-time bigotry, and so we mobilised. And I think that was probably the first great Twitter mobilisation in about 2012, I think.
2: Looking back on that from the perspective of having now written this book and mm. seen subsequent ones have happened, Do you think the response to that one was out of proportion to what
4: happened? Uh, No. No, I don't. However, what I would say is that I interviewed one person for my book who didn't want to be named, like a recipient of a terrible public Mm -hmm. shaming. He didn't want to be named, and so in the end I decided not to put him in my book at all because everybody else in the book was named. Mm -hmm. And he said after his public shaming was so ruthless, he couldn't bear You know, he felt that Jan Moyer of the Daily Mail, you know, he just felt sorry for her. Mm -hmm. And he said he would never have felt that way before, you know, he'd been publicly shamed. Because it's only when you've been publicly shamed that you know just how horrific it is, Mm -hmm. how kind of deeply, profoundly traumatising, like contrary to, you know, everything that makes us human beings. But, you know, given that, I think I'd be living in a kind of Disney world if I thought, you know, we must get rid of all shamings. Mm -hmm. Even a part of me sort of feels that because part of me thinks that, you know, shaming has become such a kind of default trigger-happy position and it's become such a kind of huge part of, of our lives now and it's so corrosive and disgusting that, you know, maybe the only way out of it is to, like, you know, eradicate... Shamings even against people who deserve it. But at the same time, I sort of feel, you know, that's a little bit too Gandhi for me, you know? So so I still think, yes, shamings like that one are, are still appropriate. So I, you know, I can't advocate against that.
2: Just a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, you had a bit of a taste of... Not exactly a public shaming, but a, a shade of what this feels like yourself, like and yeah. of the people that you write about in the book basically took exception to it. Yeah,
4: I think it's called a flame war. Apparently, I only discovered this afterwards. It made me feel good to know that it's so, you know, happened so often. It's got a name. My book was excerpted in the New York Times, and it was primarily the chapter about Justine Sacco, the woman who did the tweet, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. And I wrote a very sort of compassionate piece about her. And it got excerpted in the New York Times and, you know, 90% of the people who read it, and it went, like, hugely viral, probably more than pretty much anything I've ever written before. And about 90% of the reaction was very positive. Like, we got Justine wrong, and people felt really sorry for her, and people liked my piece. But what happened was another person in my book, a woman called Adria Richards, um, was briefly mentioned in that piece and took exception. I think, because, I, I think because she didn't like the way that the New York Times had summarised her story. Anyway, became extremely vocal about it. And the next thing I knew, I was getting like hundreds of furious messages from her supporters <laughs> Now, I was thinking this is a little bit rum because she hasn't actually read my book. <laughs> She's like, you know, and in fact, you know, if she had objections when she'd read my book, that was another matter. She just read like a paragraph that was a summary in the New York Times. Anyway, I didn't respond at all, but I did find it upsetting. <laughs> I, I read every single tweet and, it's, and they snaked their way into me and I felt anxious and upset because that's what that does to you, it's a, it's a powerful thing. I didn't reply to anybody. Um, the one that really made me smile was somebody wrote, why isn't John Ronson replying to any of us? And then somebody else wrote, oh, John Ronson only replies to men. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I have no male friends. <laughs> like I am, honestly, I am sexless. I'm like, I'm like a eunuch from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and it just made me realise, you know, I'm just a kind of blank canvas for those yeah. people's ideology. And that's what happens time and time again in public shaming. You're just, you're just a kind of pawn in somebody's predetermined ideology. And frankly, I've always been opposed to ideology being more important than human beings. And so I, you know, and I, I found... So once again, I saw that, you know, here's another example of why ideology should never be put above humanity.
2: You say, though, you're a blank canvas for the, mm. you know, the, the, the public to put their own ideas onto you about. And, and fully enough, one of the, one of the sort of first chapters in this book, you talk about mm. this experience, this, it, the infomorph. Yeah, it's fanbot. Yeah, the <laughs> <laughs> I believe is the actual term. Do you want
4: me to yeah, the on, tell a us, story? tell us what happened. Okay, well, I accidentally typed my name into Google and discovered <laughs> that there was a... Um, God knows what I was trying to type into Google probably ron swanson from uh, parks and recreation um <laughs> accidentally tapped in john ronson um, as, you do. as you do and uh discovered that there was another john ronson on twitter with my face yeah. and my name but with a completely different personality frankly it was a twat it was like, all it wanted to talk about was like its soirees, its dinner parties, what kind of lemongrass it was going to make, its stew, and, and it was being followed by people I knew from real life, who kind of, was, you know, suddenly thought, you know, why is John, John's had a breakdown. Yeah, why is John suddenly <laughs> so interested in fusion cooking? So I found out who was behind it, and it was these three intellectuals. One was an academic, one was a researcher. So I said, can you take down your spam bot?" And I said, we prefer the term infomorph. So I said, but it's taken my identity. And they said, the infomorph isn't taking your identity. It is repurposing social media data into an infomorphic aesthetic. So I sort of obviously felt this kind of tightness in my chest. And, and um, finally, I said, look, if you won't take down your spam bot, maybe we can meet and I can film it and you can uh, explain the rationale behind the spam bot. And they said, yeah, we'd very much like to meet to explain the rationale behind the infomorph. And I said, "I'm very glad to hear that because I'm looking forward to hearing the rationale behind the spam bot.
2: So um,
4: <laughs> I met them, and we had this kind of shrill fight mm-hmm. while I was shrill, and I put it on YouTube. Yeah,
2: it's a great video because you do get you do get angry, which you don't often you yeah. don't often see you in your, well, not in the film.
4: So. I got angry yesterday. I was giving a talk about this book at Future Fest, and I told the Justine Sacco story. And at the end, somebody put their hand up and said you're onto a loser here because Justin Sacco's a racist and he shouldn't be defending a racist. And I said, you know, I, I believe my book proves absolutely that she's not a racist. And we had a bit, and I got really annoyed. I was like, you know, after everything I've just said, I mean, I don't <laughs> sound like i a patrician dad, but it's like after everything I've just said, are you saying that you still think Justin Sacco deserved what she got? Mm-hmm. And he was, yes. And so we had a real ding-dong. I think they're going to put it online. And I hope that I was as awesome as I felt, but I might not have been. I might have just been shrill again. Um, so
2: did they take the infomorph down? The, the yeah, they were shamed. Into, did they the spam bot down?
4: They were yeah. shamed into acquiescence and mm-hmm. took it down. Uh, well, they didn't take it down, they froze it. So it's still there, but archived, but it doesn't tweet anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah... I remember that at one point he said, the internet is not the real world. But the internet is the real world. And I was surprised at how much I cared mm-hmm. about my identity being stolen. Identity is important.
2: Well, there was no doubt. I mean, in, in the film and in the book, like, they basically suggest that you're being a bit sort of arrogant, to suggest um, that it's you. There's lots of people called John Ronson, but he yeah. has your photograph. It it's very much, clearly it was, is yeah. supposed to be you. It was, it was a
4: very disingenuous <laughs> argument. It was... And they must have known that. Mm-hmm. I still don't quite understand what they were doing. I bear them no ill will. I mean, the only reason why I even brought this story up again and put it in my book was because, you know, I felt it was a, you know, it was a, it was a good way to start the book because here was me enjoying publicly shaming somebody before, you know, before I kind of looked at yeah, my And your ways.
2: followers started getting really nasty at that.
4: Yeah, exactly, and I loved it. And and so I felt, you know, if I'm going to write a book that's against public shaming, I have to admit that at the beginning of this, like all of us, I was Mm -hmm. in
2: favour of public shaming.
0: I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: So let's talk about public shaming well, in a historical context. So this is something that we used to do yeah as a punishment, as a regular punishment, in what way you did some sort of research on this? Didn't
4: you? Yeah, I went up to the Massachusetts archive and and yeah, I mean, you know people would be whipped and put in the stocks and the pillory and, and the reason why it died out in about eighteen forty I think roughly give or take ten years, was because it was considered too brutal. I mean, all the great thinkers of the time were saying, "We have to stop this it 's too brutal mm-hmm. there 's a misconception. I think a lot of people think it died out because it was too ineffective. I think we want to think that yeah. because we want to feel happy to publicly shame people. We want to have our cake and eat it. We want to do it, but we don't want to think that we're destroying lives.
2: So what is it about what is it about the internet that's brought this out then? What is it about social media? I guess I mean it's it's not just the internet that you don't necessarily just talk about no. instances on the internet in the book. But I mean I think the ones that people will be most familiar with are, are from Twitter one. and things. And we're all on Twitter, so let's Talk about the internet, which is, What is it about Twitter, for instance, that makes this happen?
4: I think it's partly because we're like drone strike operators on Twitter. We're not looking our victims in the face. And I think it's partly because Twitter is this kind of mutual approval machine. I mean, it's, as my friend Adam Curtis says, you know, it's like mutual grooming. We mm-hmm. surround ourselves with people who feel the same way we do. And so we just keep congratulating each other, you know. As we take people down, there's no incentive to go against the tide. And, in Mm -hmm. fact, going against the tide can be dangerous. I noticed Helen Lewis from The New Statesman reviewed my book and said that she felt sorry for Justine Sacco as it was happening, Mm. but was too afraid to say anything.
2: Yeah, I think that's a position that a lot of people find themselves in when these various arguments are going on.
4: And isn't that weird that we've created that system Mm -hmm. for ourselves?
2: Where do you think... I mean, is there a line? I mean, we've already talked about the Jan Moore thing. Mm. But is there a sort of line mm. where it's, well, it's okay. where it sort of crosses over to be non-acceptable? Because I, I mm. say that because, obviously, everybody's got their own perspective on this. People all have their own opinions and the people... So there's, if we say, OK, so there's, there's public shaming of somebody that does a sort of what would be perceived as a minor transgression and it seems like the, the punishment is out of proportion. Then there's trolling, there's the people like, you know... Yeah. Anita sort of Sarkeesian or whatever, and... or you know, or Rebecca Watson who seem to mm-hmm. attract the opprobrium of a ridiculous amount of appalling people. Yeah. And then there's people that are called out the Jam Wars and there'll be like, you know, some yeah. Emily what well, Emily Thornbury would be a, a good another yeah. not particularly necessarily well, bad Emily, example of that. Emily
4: Thornbury, I think, is like a sort of She's sort of... Because she's no Jan Moyer. Yeah, exactly.
2: It? It's, a, it's a very borderline case, but an yeah. interesting one because of that. I mean, I was going to say, yeah. you know, somebody who's a, a UKIP counsellor saying something racist the or whatever. Then. Yeah, yeah you right, those all are, the time.
4: you're right. Those are three very different cases. And, and, and for me, when I was writing this book, one of those three types of things was much more interesting than the other yeah. two. And that was like the disproportionate mass punishment mm-hmm. of somebody like Justin Sacco who didn't really do anything much wrong at all. And that, to me, was more... T- trolls... There was a couple of reasons why trolls were less interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think I'll try and say something out loud that I've been thinking. So, um, two things, mm-hmm. which I'm slightly worried will come over as, like, offensive <laughs> or outrageous, but, not, but they're not intended to be, so I hope they don't come over that way. <laughs> but I'm going to say what I feel what I about But nobody
2: will, nobody will take any notice of that caveat, obviously. No, no. They'll probably yeah. ashamed about it.
4: Exactly. If somebody like Rebecca Watson is sort of bombarded by misogynistic trolls, mm-hmm. it's horrible. And in fact, I've been with Rebecca when it was happening and it was that like kind of deeply distressing mm-hmm. for her. But, and I'm not trying to make, make like sort of, equi- like, you know, pain equivalencies here. But the point is, she, because the people who were trolling her were like an outrageous, misogynistic group of lunatics, mm-hmm. she would have had a kind of support network who would have rallied around her and fought her case. Yeah. Somebody like Justine Sacco had nobody, totally isolated. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the most profound sort of social shaming when...
2: Even her family were... Yeah, when
4: <laughs> everybody, <her>. when everybody <laughs> agrees that you're a monster. So even Rebecca, at her, like, worst amount of trolling... Mm-hmm would have had people supporting them. And, mm-hmm. and so I think by, that, by the very nature of that, it surely isn't as traumatising, because what's so traumatising is being told by everybody that you need to get out. I mean, that's unthinkable. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, I think, one of the things I wanted to say about trolling. But at the same time, I understand that's like saying, you know, oh, a victim of trolling. It's a bit like Richard Dawkins saying, oh, poor Muslim. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying, I suppose what I am trying to say is... If you've been a victim of trolling, don't think that you know what it was like to be Justin Sacco, Mm -hmm. because there's a a profound difference.
2: To Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to John Ronson about his book So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And John, in this next part, I want to look at some of the examples of the various types of public shaming that you look at. Yeah. I really want to start with somebody who has also been on Little Atoms numerous times, Joan Alera. Oh, has he? Yeah, I interviewed him twice and I interviewed him about the creativity book just before the thing happened. Yeah. Well, I'll let you remind us mm. what this story is about.
4: Jonah, okay, so I think this is an extraordinary story. In Mm -hmm. fact, if I'm being totally honest and narcissistic, I think the Jonah Lehrer, Michael Moynihan story is the best bit of writing I've ever done. I'm I'm incredibly Mm. proud of it. It's the story of of Michael Moynihan, who's a a, a freelance journalist. He's now much more successful, but at the time, you know, he was kind of scraping a living as Mm -hmm. a blogger and a freelancer. And he discovered kind of just through luck, that Jonah Lehrer had faked some Bob Dylan quotes, but added words to Bob Dylan quotes, and basically messed around with Bob Dylan quotes. Mm -hmm. And so Michael emailed Jonah, and Jonah, in what is kind of breathtaking miscalculation, instead of saying, oh, you're right, I'm an idiot, I'll correct it in the second edition, basically wrote back to say, I'm right, it's history that's wrong, and just dug himself you know, I say at one point in the book, if our shameworthiness lies in the space between who we are and how we present ourselves to the world, Jonah's space, was at the size of the Grand Canyon? So... Yeah, that is a good line. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he just dug himself deeper and deeper and deeper until finally he knew he was caught. Mm-hmm. And he broke, begged Michael. Mm-hmm. 20 times a day he phoned him, 25 times a day, begged him not to publish... And then suddenly these two men are just trapped in this nightmare together. It's kind of nightmare that neither of them wanted, mm-hmm. but neither could escape it, because Michael felt he had to publish.
2: Yeah.
4: Or else he would have been the kind of... He would have, like, buckled. So it's such an interesting story about mm-hmm. the relationship between these two men. You know, it could easily be a stage play. And
2: then, of course, it turned out that, you know, when more investigation was done that... Jonah had done worse things. Yeah, like, yeah.
4: Uh, The worst of all was... I think, I think most people would agree that the worst thing that he did was plagiarising um, some paragraphs from Christian Jarrett of the British Psychological mm-hmm. Society. His other stuff was self-plagiarism, which, you know, I, even at my most self-righteous, I can't see that as a particularly bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody... I mean, God, you know, I'm going to stand up on stage tonight and tell jokes I've told in the past.
2: Mm-hmm. But this is a performance.
4: True. I think the New Yorker would have had the right to get pissed off with him for reusing some paragraphs he'd written in the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a matter, you know, that's a matter for him and his employer. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think he would have the right, as the owner of that material, to reuse it. You know, he wasn't plagiarising anybody else. Mm -hmm. The reason why I say this is because there's a couple of lines in the psychopath test which people really like. It's what I'm talking about how I say if you want to get away with wielding True malevolent power Mm -hmm. be boring Mm -hmm. because journalists love writing about eccentric people. So you know, which is why sort of the bankers got away for so Mm -hmm. long because they were just boring and journalists didn't want to write about them because they didn't want to write boring stories. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting point. And and I'd written it previously. Mm -hmm. I think I'd written it either in the Guardian or in this little collection I had out called What I Do, Mm -hmm. and nobody paid much attention and so I I put it in the psychopath chest I thought this is a really interesting thing I'm saying Mm -hmm. here and I want to give it like a second chance and and so I put it in the psychopath chest and sure enough it's become one of the most popular parts of that book it's one Mm -hmm. of the most quoted parts of that book I'm proud of that, I'm not (laughs) embarrassed by that it's like when a band brings out a single Mm -hmm. that nobody listens to and then they re-release it a couple of years Mm -hmm. later and it it does really well Mm -hmm. So that's why I can't get too annoyed about Jonah's self-plagiarism because, that's for me, that's a positive story, the story I just said.
2: Justin Sacco, you've mentioned a few times already, but give us a a, a recap of what actually happened, the sort of events as they unfolded. Um, And they literally did unfold in that sort of way. So
4: she tweeted, Go to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Now, obviously... Well, not obviously, but in truth... She wasn't intending to be racist. She wasn't intending to gleefully flaunt her privilege. She was trying to make an anti-racist... I don't know if anti-racist is the right word. She was trying to make a joke making fun of people who gleefully flaunt her privilege in much the same way that Randy Newman would write rednecks or short people.
2: Well, it, it, I thought at the time, I remember this happening and thought that's basically what... Sarah that's Silver a lame Silver. attempt at a Sarah Silver yeah. joke.
4: Or, yeah. or a lame attempt at an uh, episode of South Park. Yeah. You know, or a lame attempt at a Randy Newman song. Anyway, if people did realise that and I'm sure a lot of people did, they still tore her to pieces. And by the time her plane landed... Yeah, and so
2: literally she was flying to South Africa while all yeah. of this was going on with Oblivious too, oh, yeah. yeah.
4: And it was horrific. I mean, it was, the, it was torture. I mean, you know, 100,000 people waiting in the dark for her to land so they could leap out at her and yell boo. It's torture. You know, we discovered torture that day. <laughs> That's literally, like, startling people... Mm-hmm. so extremely. I write about that in The Minister Goats. Mm-hmm. You know, we discovered torture. We were like Guantanamo interrogators waiting for Justin Sacco to land. Mm-hmm. It's awful. It's, it's one of the most brutal things I've ever seen.
2: And, of course, she lost her job.
4: Yeah, but lost herself, mm-hmm. you know, for a year. I mean, she's OK again now. It took her a year. The two things that made it OK was she got a new job eventually mm-hmm. and... And I came along with my story, which sort of reconnected her to the world. You know, people were like, I'm sorry for what we did just do.
3: I'm Natalie Haynes. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: I want to talk about the sort of post-shaming world, the end of this, and what we can do to sort of deal with it. So, yeah, so talk about this company, reputation.com.
4: I mean, you have to be pretty rich. Or you have to be pretty rich if it's like a big shaming if it's all over the place, like mm-hmm. Lindsay Stone. Somebody like Justine Sackle, I think it's impossible. But it's kind of like a sort of you know, privatised version of Google's right to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. They can manipulate the search results. They can trick the Google algorithms into thinking that nice judgments about this person mm-hmm. are, are, are more important than bad judgments. It's all done with, like, it's kind of complicated, but it's all to do with kind of page rank. You know, certain pages have got more prominence than other pages, so your LinkedIn page, um, you know, automatically goes high up the Google search results and so on. And they try and get the bad stuff buried to a place where nobody looks, which is like page two, Mm -hmm. page three of Google. And I think they do do it well. Lindsay was a hard case. Mm -hmm. They all really cared for Lindsay. They all felt deeply sorry for her, and and so did I. Mm -hmm. And usually I think they work with really wealthy people, so I think they thought it was really nice to be able to work with somebody who didn't have any money.
2: And to do it for me, you know. So it was a good, happy... Experience. The other thing, you, you attend a, a group session, I think, called the Shame Eradication Workshop.
4: Yeah. Well, that's what I called it. I mean, his actual title is Radical Honesty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where the way to get rid of shame is to just have no secrets, just be completely honest about yourself, your perversions, what you think of other people. Mm-hmm. just ends up with everybody just yelling at each other. I didn't find it hugely successful. I understand what they're doing. It's like, you know, again, our shameworthiness lies in the gap between who we are and how we present Mm -hmm. ourselves to the world. What feels no shame? A dog. So -hmm. be like a dog, just living instantly in the moment. But it was kind of weird. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one funny story. This didn't happen when I was there, but it happened when a friend of mine, Starley Kine, was there, Mm -hmm. um, just before me, maybe a couple of months earlier. At the beginning, you have to go around, tell everybody a secret about yourself that you don't want people to know. And when Starley was there, the first person said, ''My secret is that I haven't paid tax for ten years.'' And um, everyone was like, ''Oh, well, it's such a great secret.'' And then the second secret was, ''I killed a man.'' And then the third person was, ''This person had killed somebody, pushed him out of the car, never, nobody ever found out.'' Then the third person was, um, ''Oh, my God, my secrets are so boring. I suppose I can talk about how I have sex with my cat.'' And then the second person said, ''The murderer said, ''Can I add something?'' Uh, I also have sex with my cat. <laughs> I think that's hilarious.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, where do you think this is going in the future? How, how can we sort of change how people behave on Twitter and all of that? Yeah. What, are we going to carry on like this? Well, I hope not. I mean,
4: I want people to realise that, you know, human beings are a mixture of sins and talents and flaws. And I think uh, I'm hoping my book will sort of change people's attitudes a little. I, know, I don't want to sound like Russell Brand, but I've got ambition for this book, like he had for his book. So I do want to sound like Russell Brand. I, I, I want this book to, to sort of change people's behaviour. Not think twice before they make a joke that might be misconstrued, mm-hmm. but think twice before tearing somebody apart
2: for nothing. I've been talking to John Ronson. We've been talking about his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Again, apologies for the, uh, for the noisy air conditioning unit in this room, but we're uh, backstage at the... Uh, colchester arts center before john goes on stage to do his gig so john thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me
4: neil thank you very much for and i'll see you next time the next book you've been listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture
3: this episode of little atoms was produced and presented by neil denny and was broadcast on resonance 104.4 FM.
4: the show is supported by 89 up and
2: hosted by positive internet you can follow the show on twitter at little atoms you can find old interviews new journalism and more on our relaunch website littleatoms.com thanks for listening